Good to see you this morning. Uh, if you are new to Stone Point, uh, we are so glad to have you. And uh, as I was mentioned earlier, hey, we would love for you to, to hang out with us at Connection Point. Uh, we'll have some people there that would love to just to put a face to the name. I would love to meet you as well. I'll be out in the main lobby after the end of the service. And so if I could meet with you or pray for you or encourage you in some way, please let me know how, because I, I would love to do that. Um, if you've been hanging out with us for some time over the last really 10 or 11 weeks, you know that we're in the book of Romans. And so uh, if you are new, uh, we've been walking through the book of Romans and we're in chapter five. And so if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn with us to Romans chapter five. Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament. And so uh, if you uh, have a Bible, you can just simply turn kind of the last uh, really third of your Bible and uh, you can find the, the Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then from there, you can turn, and there's Acts. And then right after Acts, there's the book of Rome, uh, Romans, which uh, is Paul, uh, the apostle of Jesus, the one uh, who had uh, an encounter with him on the road to Damascus. Uh, he, he is the one who's writing this book to the church of Rome. And in Romans chapter 5, really verses 1 through 11, we see all the benefits that we receive in knowing Christ and following him. Uh, we see uh, just uh, the amnesty we receive, uh, the assurance uh, that we see, the access to God that we get, all of these great things that we get as a benefit to him, uh, knowing uh, us knowing Christ and being able to walk in him. But what he does next is he says, you know, as a result, therefore, he's going to walk out some of the things uh, that we've inherited from the this guy named Adam. And so for us to realize like what he's talking about, I think it's really helpful that we go all the way back to the very beginning. So I want you to mark Romans 5, and then I also want you to kind of hold your finger there uh, or put your string there in your Bible, and then we're going to flip all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Now, if you have uh, kiddos that are in the 6th to 12th grade, this fall we are walking through the theme of redemption with them, uh, and we are spending a lot of time in the redemptive narrative, which we're going to discuss today. So uh, they, they should know this. You should be able to go have some solid conversations at home about this. If they, can't, if they can't follow you at home, that means they're not paying attention on Wednesday nights, okay? Um, if they're leading the way for you uh, at home, then it means that you just didn't get it all today. So you're going to get the whole theme of redemption, where we're taking our kids all fall. We're spending the entire fall talking about it. I'm going to give it to you in one day. And so uh, hang on, here we go. Genesis chapter one. And uh, in Genesis chapter one, you have uh, the creation story. It, it starts in Genesis chapter one, that in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. Uh, you see that the earth was formless and void. And then God gave it form and he gave it a feeling with a purpose. And so then God creates everything. And then on the sixth day, we see this narrative take place. And in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, you see the triune God, in essence, really this conversation uh, that, that happens like this. And it says, then God said, let us make man in our image. Now, the, the reason that there's a us there is because there's a plurality in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so you get this picture, this narrative of what's going to transpire. God's going to create um, male and female in the likeness of God, in his image. And so we believe um, as followers of Christ that we are image bearers. That means that if you um, have a, a soul, 
um, then you also have a body because God created us in, in that image. So God didn't create you just to have a body. He created you to have a soul, and then he gave you a body to house the soul. The reason why is because God doesn't have a body. He's not physical, so we oftentimes struggle to think about who God is because we, we always want to make him physical right? Uh, we want him to look like Jesus. Uh, that's how we kind of think about him. So when we're praying to God, we oftentimes have in our minds like the person of Jesus. But the reality is God is spirit and we are too. He created us to have a soul and then he housed it with a body. Think about the Old Testament. God was a spirit and he was housed in the tabernacle. Understand? A physical place, but he's a spiritual being. So you got to ask this question, well, how, did we, how were we creating his likeness? We were creating his likeness in this sense that we have a spirit, that we have a purpose, that we are um, set apart, that we're unique, that we are to have a relationship with him. And you see all of this really framed out for us in Genesis chapter 1 and following. But that's the idea. In verse 28, it says, and then God blessed them. Who's them? That's his creation. Namely, Adam and Eve. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over everything that moves along the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps along the, the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31 says, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So what you get in Genesis chapter 1, you get a a narrative, a framework from beginning to end of the creation story. On the seventh day, God rests. Then you move to chapter 2, and you get kind of the framework of how all that is organized. But in Genesis chapter 2, what's interesting is, is you see how God forms man. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, And the Lord God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, this is after he was created from dust. So he's created from dust. God gives him life, and then he puts him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You must surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Now, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to just put an underline under the tree of knowledge of good and evil because we'll come back to it. And then he says, for in the day that you eat it, meaning the tree in the garden that's a prohibition, you shouldn't, you shouldn't eat that. He goes, if you do, you will surely die. And I would circle that. So the reason why is because I'm going to come back to that as well. You're going to see this idea of the tree of the garden, the knowledge of good and evil, and you're also going to see the consequences of that tree, then you're also going to see what that consequence is, which here in the very early stages, he tells Adam, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one that I've given you as a prohibition, the Garden of Eden, all these other things you can enjoy, stay away from this one. If you eat it, you will surely die. Everybody say die. So here's what it is. Think about this real quickly. The earth was formless and void. God speaks, and he gives it form, and he gives it purpose. Then, not only does he give it form and purpose, then he creates someone with form and purpose. In the image of God, he's an image bearer. His name is Adam. And he goes, Adam, you are to have form, and you are to have purpose. Matter of fact, everything that I've given that is purposeful is good, and you're to rule over it. Everything you have dominion over. 
So it was empty and void and dark, now has form and feel and light, and it's yours. And I love you, and I want the best for you, because what I have created is good, and what I created in you as an image bearer of the king is very good. And he goes, I, Adam, you're a vice regent. Everybody say vice regent. A vice regent means you have access to God. I'm, I'm your king. You're my ambassador, and you are, in essence, the president of all the earth, but you're not president of all the universe. He goes, I'm in charge, and you're my vice regent. This is all yours. Enjoy it. It's good. Hey, and, and one more thing. Stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat it, you'll surely die. Now, really, if you know this narrative, you're like, okay, I get that. I've heard that story. And, and you've probably even heard this because I've shared it before in the past. But if you look a little bit further down in Genesis chapter 2, you'll notice that after God gave Adam the prohibition, he then created Eve. So when God gives the prohibition, it could appear, and, and this might be pure speculation, but it could appear that Eve is not even there when God has given Adam the prohibition. Now, I know today it would never be a problem for a man to not communicate to his wife, <laughs> but maybe that's what happens in this narrative. So God says, hey, Adam, this is the prohibition. Don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you'll surely die. Then he takes flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone from this. He says, this is going to be woman. They're gonna, you're going to leave your father and mother. You're going to cling together. And you're going to become one flesh. And it seems that maybe she didn't get all of it. She, she didn't get the full framework of what happened. It was probably going, Adam going, yeah, baby, just don't go in near that tree. Don't touch it. Don't do anything. Got it? And she's got some questions, and he's like, no, I, I, we'll, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> End of that, you move to chapter 3. In chapter 3, you see what happens. You see the breakdown of not only communication, but you see the breakdown in the relationship between the vice region and the creator of the universe. You see... The serpent appeared, Genesis 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say? So here's the serpent is in the Garden of Eden. He says to the woman, Did, you, did God actually say you shall not eat of the, not eat of the tree of God, uh, of any tree in the garden? He, he didn't say the tree, any tree of the garden. And the woman said to him, Well, we might eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And then she adds her own spin. Neither should you touch it, lest you die. Now then you've got the serpent who comes back and he says to the woman in verse 4, you're not going to surely die. I mean, that's the, that's the correspondence. He goes, come on, come on. Like, really? You're going to die? That, that seems a little excessive, maybe a little overboard. I mean, you're probably I mean, not going to die. He goes on. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He goes, you're not going to die. He goes, what's going to happen is, is that you're going to ruin God's party. Because what he's doing is he's keeping all the knowledge to himself. He's, he's keeping good things from you. And because he's keeping good things from you, if you eat of it, you're going to know all the things he knows. Now, that's not only crafty, but John chapter four, uh, John uh, chapter 8, verse 44 would say that, uh, that 
Satan is the father of lies. And it says this, that he is the murderer from the beginning. The reality is, is that in this moment, he is trying to deceive them. And here's what he's trying to deceive them with. He's, he's basically saying, hey, Eve, do you, do you really believe that God is good? Because it seems like God's trying to keep something from you. Now, let me ask you a question. You ever felt like in, in life that, that God's trying to keep something good from you? That maybe he's trying to cheat you in some ways that, that in some ways because of experiences or circumstances in your life that, that he wasn't favorable upon you. And, and because of that, you would say, you know what, God, like you've, you've really wronged me here. But it really brings about the question is, is one, can God wrong a person and still be holy and right? That's a really theological question you have to wrestle with. Here's the next question. If you are accusing God of wronging you, then what are you really accusing him of? You're really, you're really making an accusation against his character because that's what happened here. See, if God's going to withhold one good thing from you, then it might as well be that he holds all good things from you. Let me explain it this way. A lot of you can understand. Cowboys play in just a few moments, okay? Um, there's a handful of you that you're, you're like, okay, I hope that you don't go long. Hey, trust me, I won't go long, but uh, our worship team at the end may. I don't know, okay? But... Uh, if you're watching the Cowboys game today and you, and you throw your hat or, or maybe you drop a bomb uh, because the ref calls a holding penalty and, and, you, and, and then you, know, you go, man, that wasn't a holding penalty. That, that's terrible. And I come from a coaching family, so on the sidelines, I mean, typically I mean, you just hear a barrage of people and I'm like, you know, it, it's, it's just interesting, you know, like, and, and the, I hate sitting in the stands because the, you're yelling as much as the coaches are yelling and, and it's just, it's just terrible. But here's the deal. I started thinking about this. When you, when you say that a, a ref is cheating your team, do you know what you're really saying? What you're really saying is, I do not believe that you are a man worthy of enough character that you should be officiating this, officiating this game in the first place. Because what you do, what you believe is that somehow it's, it's lopsided, that somehow uh, there's somebody going to take advantage of you. And, and that's just a, a question you have to ask yourself. Because if, if they're throwing the flags and they're not trying to be fair with both teams, and you're questioning the very heart and the character of a man. Like if, if you would say, well, oh, Brandon, I, I, I think you, you stacked it, or man, I, I think you, you cheated us on some, on some occasion, then what you're doing is you're saying, Brandon, I don't believe that you are, are respectful, and I don't believe that you can be trusted. See, that's the issue at heart. That's what the adversary is doing. He is creating a place and a foundation for a lack of trust here. He is saying to Eve, surely he can't be trusted. Surely, he doesn't want you to see what he sees. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. Surely, if you had what he had, you would be God. And the framework of trust here is being broken. Then look what happens. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, her eye made an appeal. It was a delight to the eyes. That the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of his fruit and she ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Everybody say opened. 
The eye is the lamp of the body, is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, six verse 22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If the eye is healthy, the whole body will be full of light. In contrast, the next verse he says, but if the eye is not healthy, the whole body will be full of darkness. Now the reason Jesus says that is because he knows that our eyes will deceive us. And here it is, the eye deceives her. She has a desire, and you know what happens when our eyes have a desire? When we long for something else, whether it be our neighbor's stuff or a better vehicle or um, whatever it is that we might desire with our eyes, and I think for all of us it may be a little different, we have a desire to take and grab a hold of it, and that's what they did. The eye led to a desire. The desire led to them taking and coveting for themselves. And then what did they do? They ate, and then both of their eyes were opened. Opened to what? Opened to the consequence, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. They now recognize the depravity of their ways. They see their sin, and they run and hide from God because they know that there is a new reality. Now, see, Paul picks up on the theme of what's happening here in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And so if you have your Bibles, let's flip back over real quickly. And we're going to look at three key things here in Romans chapter 5. And we're going to see in verse 12 through 14, the very first thing is you're going to see the ruin and the destruction that comes. And so if you have your uh, Bible, you can just actually write the words ruin right there. Because it's, it is the ruin that we inherit. Matter of fact, he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Okay, who is he talking about? He's talking about Adam. So if you have your Bible, you can write Adam right there. That's the one man. So just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Here's what he's saying. He is saying what he's already said in Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now the question is, is where did sin begin? Where, where did sin actually originate? It started in the Garden of Eden when trust was broken. And so everything, you could just take an arrow and draw it back and you could just put Genesis 3. And you could see that the origination of our problem all started with Adam and Eve. Now you might say, well, well, Eve was the weaker vessel and I think you could strongly support that. Not that in the sense that we're, we're uh, dogging on a, a woman here. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is, is that in some ways, the enemy went and, and, and certainly tried to attack her. Now, I think that Paul makes it clear that sin originated with a man. He didn't say here, and it all goes back, and death through sin, and all sin, uh, we all sin because of a woman. He didn't say that. He says, just as sin came into the world through one man, he could have easily changed that through one woman. He doesn't. And the reason why is for for multiple reasons. One, when we're married, men, ladies, we are one flesh. Isn't it interesting that that's how chapter two ends? You leave your father and mother, you cling together as one flesh. Then you see the start of Genesis chapter three. They are one together. That means that when Eve goes down, Adam goes down. Man, we need to realize in our marriage, like we are one. It's till death do us part. It's through good times and, and bad times. It's through uh, sorrows and joys. It's through mountaintops and it's through the valley of the shadow of death. And all of those times as men, we're shepherding their hearts. We're communicating with them. And, and friends, men, real quickly, when we don't shepherd our, our ladies well, 
and we don't communicate with them well, then they could easily be deceived. That's what you have here. You, you just see a deception enter. But, but what's, what's crazy is, is that Adam's the one who has to bear the brunt of it. He's the one ultimately going to give an account for God and to God. And as a result of this sin, uh, it spread to all men because all have sinned. And so verse 12 is just showing you the ruin and the destruction that we receive because Adam and Eve made a choice to not obey God. Make sense? Now, what's interesting is, is that this, this death has spread to all men because all have sinned. Uh, if you remember in Psalm 51, David, after his incident with a, a woman named Bathsheba, you see his prayer of repentance. But in, in Psalm 51, verse 5, he just says, Surely I was brought, I've brought forth in iniquity. In my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin. He knew that from the very beginning of his being, he was conceived in sin. And what's interesting is that we all are conceived in sin. We are born of flesh, and so that means we all were sinners. From the time that we were uh, a, a moment old, we were already desiring our friend's pacifier next to us. You had no problem with ripping off a, a, a baby's bottle. You had no problem with sinking your claws or biting somebody that had what you wanted. That You see it naturally. It's who we are. Our disposition is sinfulness because that's what we inherited from Adam. That's what he's saying. Verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now verse 13, if you look at it, it could be pretty confusing. I'm going to just kind of give you some clarity around it real quickly. When it says, Indeed sin was in the world before there was no law, it means that sin has always existed from Adam and Eve. Y'all got that? So it's always happened from then on. But it's interesting that it's hard to account for sin when you don't know exactly what sin is because there's no street signs or markers. A couple of weeks ago, I kind of shared the experience. If you, you got some guys in the Wild West and they're strolling through with their horses and their buggies and the sheriff rolls through and he goes, hey, listen, you need to slow it down. They're going to go, what do you mean? He's going, I, th I think you're going too fast. Well, what's the standard? I don't know. You just need to turn down some horsepower. Like it needs to go a little slower. You know, it's a little high. Okay, how do you know when you're going too fast? When there's a mile marker and when there's, when there's street signs? You know you've blown through a stop sign when there's a stop sign. But if there's no stop sign, friends, guess what? We keep driving, don't you? I mean, there's a lot of us, including me, that I'm like, I missed the stop sign. It's usually my wife's like, hey, you know there was a stop sign there. I was like, oh, I just didn't see it. But listen, just because I didn't see it doesn't mean that I'm not accountable for it. So officer pulls me over, and he goes, hey, dude, you missed a stop sign. I'm like, I didn't see it. He's not going to go, you know what? That's a pass because you didn't see it. He's going to go, you need to open your eyes. It's right there. And I'm like, come on, man, let's go back to it. And sure enough, it's right there. That's what he's saying. He goes, indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given. Before there were stop signs. And before there were one-way street signs, before there were green lights and yellow lights and red lights, he goes, there was sin. But sin's not counted where there is no law, meaning it's hard to determine what sin is if you don't have a guide and you don't have strict moral code. And he says, yet death reigned from Adam and Moses. He says, but even though you couldn't clearly perceive what sin was, he goes, you knew there's something in you that, that's, that's just common morality, you know it's not okay to take another husband's wife. You know it's not okay to, to take somebody else's lamb and put it on your own table because you want it. Hey, you know it's not okay to, to, to kill someone. 
Isn't it interesting that Moses, if you remember, he kills the Egyptian men, buries them in the sand. Do you know what he did? He ran and hid. You remember that? Isn't that what we do in, in, in our sin? We run and hide. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? They ran and hid. Why? Why did they run and hide? There wasn't a moral code. Moses, Moses didn't have a moral code. There wasn't a law. Sinai hadn't happened yet. There wasn't a thou shall not kill. But yet in his morality, he knew it's wrong to kill a man and bury him in the sand. Friends, y'all, y'all do realize that it's wrong to kill a man and bury him in the sand? Okay, toss him in a pond, whatever. Yes? Now, is it the law that made that clear to you? Is that what you needed? You needed Sinai? You needed, you needed a declaration on stone to know that? No. And that's what he's saying. And he says, even though there wasn't law, death reigned. Meaning the consequences of sin are still in place. We don't get to say, oh, I didn't see the stop sign. Oh, I didn't know that. Because Death reigns. We have had it spiraling downhill ever since. We are in ruin and destruction because sin has distorted and perverted our relationship with God. It has brought about darkness and calamity in our lives, and we are now perverted because of sin. That's what he's saying. We have been ruined. Verse 14b goes on, even over those who are sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. He goes, death reigns even though you didn't sin like Adam did. Okay, great. You didn't, you didn't commit the same thing. It doesn't matter. You've sinned and you fall short of the glory of God. And so because Adam sinned, all of humanity has fallen. Our inheritance has now been corrupted. Does that make sense? But here's the deal. Paul doesn't stop there. He goes further. And he goes, but hey, listen, even though you deserve ruin and destruction, he goes, there's good news. There's a rescue plan. And so Paul tells you about the rescue plan right here in chapter 5, verses 15 and 17. Look at verse 15. But the free gift of God is not like the trespass. What was the trespass? Adam and Eve's sin that perverted us. For if many died through one man's trespass, which would be us, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, that abounded for many. So he goes, in Adam you all die, but in this person that... I'm speaking of, you can have God's grace and a gift of his, of his righteousness. And it's in this person named Jesus Christ. It is in him that grace abounds for many. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Here's what he's saying. He goes, in Adam, we're all toast. In Christ, you can eat of the bread of life. In in Him, you don't have to experience condemnation. So in Adam, we all get what we deserve, which is separation and death forever. We're condemned. We cannot stand before God. But in Christ, we can have grace that abounds. Uh, We can have our many trespasses forgiven, and we can be justified in the sight of God, which is an incredible, incredible hope. Verse 17 goes on, For if, because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's the idea here. He goes, You're, you, are, you are separated in, in Adam, and yet you have been made new in Christ. Now think about it real quickly. 
Do you ever think it's, it's hard to stand and take the heat in the kitchen for another man's sin? Or even more than that, like it, do you think it's fair when you go down with a team? Now, some of you, you played sports, and, and one of the most frustrating things in sports is when you got a couple of knuckleheads on the team, and, and they're, they're lifting weights, and there's a standard. So we're going to do, do a bench press, and we're going to do eight reps, Okay. And then here's what we're doing, eight reps, and, and then there's two guys, they get caught, and they did six. And then the coach blows a gasket. And then he goes, hit the floor, and then every single person in there is now doing burpees, up-downs, until you, like your tongue's sticking on the floor. You're tired, you're frustrated, you hate everybody in the room. If you've never experienced that, you've never, you've never felt the weight of this text. Because basically what you're doing is you're being punished for other people's problem. And you're going, man, if you could just get it together, we could have already been on the bus home. But we're still here, and we're sweating, we're dying, and, and I can't stand you because you cheat our team. And you got people, that, hey, if you've ever been in it, it's just this classic picture. It shows the moral weakness and the breakdown of our minds. You got people blaming one another. They're yelling at each other. And you got coach over there just sitting in the chair with a glass of lemonade and his whistle going, one more. One more. The reason I tell you that, that's the text here. That is the text. It doesn't seem fair. How in the world am I going to take the punishment because of these people's sin? I mean, how in the world is it that I'm, I'm guilty because of Adam and Eve. Because we look at our life and we go, you know, I'm not that big. I mean, I'm not that bad. Don't get me wrong. I've messed up. I mean, I've, I fall short of the glory of God. Of course, all of us would admit to some sin. But, like, we, we deserve death and separation forever. That doesn't even seem fair. How could a loving God do that? Listen, it's because of Adam and Eve. And it's all just rolling downhill and has ever since. And you and I deserve death and separation. But in Christ, grace can abound. And so you see this rescue plan, but then you go on and you see the reign of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 real quickly. I just want you to see it. Verse 21 and 22, Paul writes to the the church of Corinth this way. He says, For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man, man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So you can get death or you can get life. He goes on in verse 25 and 26, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This meaning Christ, look at this, and the last enemy of Christ is destroyed, that is to be destroyed is death. So why did Christ die on the tree? Why did he give up his life? So that on the third day he could overcome sin, death, and the grave. And listen, I want you to realize that in many ways the pain of death has been It's been finalized and been punished. But we still feel the the weight of death, don't we? We still feel the the challenges of brokenness around us. And guess what? God has not settled all of it, but he will one day through the person and the work of Jesus and his return and ultimately the setting up of his kingdom. But until then, death in some ways still affects us. We're separated from him. Our our mortal bodies are going to give out and we can thank Adam for it. 
He goes on, though, and look at the reign of Christ. So we've seen the ruin of our, uh, of our sin problem. Uh, we've seen the rescue plan, but look at the reign of Christ. Look at what he, he has planned. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification of the life for all men. So he goes, in, in one man you're condemned, in another one you're saved. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Because one guy didn't meet the standard, he didn't do the push-ups, the whole team suffered. We're all sinners. Adam missed the mark. That's why he declares clearly, Paul does in Romans 3, that, uh, what, that there's not one righteous, not even one. That no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside is what he says. He goes on to verse 23, he goes, all have sinned false for the glory of God, that's what we receive in this guy named Adam. He goes on the latter part of 19. But so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He's just giving a contrast, a parallel. He goes, you got this one who's fallen and he's, he's given us death, but he goes, you got another one who's righteous and perfect and he rules and he reigns. Verse 20 says, now the law came to increase the trespass. The sheriff couldn't do his job until he had some signs up. And when he had more signs up, he started writing more tickets. You understand? That's why you have law in the land. That's what you had. You had law. And, and where, where there was law came the increase of the trespass. You realize, oh man, there's more sin now than there was. But where sin increased, look at this, circle it, grace abounded. All the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam brings sin, Christ brings righteousness. Do you see the reign of Christ, the rule of Christ? So you remember the question, is it, is it fair when we all do burpees because of the one or two guys that didn't accomplish their, their job? You go, no, I don't feel like it. And then, and then the coach tells you, well, we're a team. Let me ask you this. Would it be fair if, if the standard was a guy said, you know what, coach, I'll do all. I'll do everyone's burpees, all 43 of them. I'll do them all. Coach, I'll stay late, and I'll, I'll stay until the evening. I'll do them all. Whatever, whatever is required of our team, you can put it all on me, and I'll do it all. That's what Christ does. Christ, in Colossians 2, verse 14, meets the legal demands. He single-handedly defeats the enemy, Satan and his adversaries, single-handedly because of his rule and his reign and because of his power and because of his perfect life. He endures what all of us should get in the first Adam. And you might ask the question, well, how does that even happen? Well, how, how, how does that even come to pass? And I would just simply say, because of who he is, and real quickly, as I close, I'm going to encourage you in the best way I know how. I want you to pay very close attention to the two different atoms. Because there is one atom that brings a handful of things that bring despair. And there's another atom, which Paul says is the second atom. He's the greater atom. His name's Jesus. I want you to see what he gives you. So think about this real quickly, because I've set it all up for you, and I'm going to leave with an encouragement to you. The first atom was born supernaturally. He was born of dust. The only difference is, is to dust he'll return. The second Adam, Jesus, was also born supernaturally. Y'all know that? It's called the immaculate conception. You might even go, well, okay, what, why is that even important? Because Jesus also born supernaturally, was born of spirit. 
which is interesting. The reason he's born of the Spirit is because his flesh is not corrupted. He wasn't born of a seed. He, Mary and Joseph didn't lay together and then ultimately, because of two seeds, produce another human being. What they, what they had was a virgin birth, an immaculate conception of someone born of spirit, which if Jesus supernaturally is born of spirit, guess what? He doesn't receive the weight of the, of the sin problem rolling from the Garden of Eden. He doesn't take on that sin problem. Why? Because he's born of spirit. He is God. And I'm thankful for it. Because if the narrative goes any other way, if there's not a virgin birth and he's just some guy born of two parents in Palestine, then guess what? We are in trouble. But by God's grace, he also had a supernatural existence and, and it, it's what saves our life. The first Adam was disobedient in the garden. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He ate. The second was obedient in the garden. You remember the garden of Gethsemane? He sweat bloods of sweat drops of blood pouring from his forehead. And he asked the question, Father, may there be any other way that this cup could pass from me? But not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus was obedient. The first Adam tempted, scorned, questioned, he falls flat on his face. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, questioned by the same adversary, the same father of lies, he stands the test. Tempted three different times, every single time. A biblical response that would honor his heavenly father and that would produce righteousness and fruitfulness. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says that even though we, uh, we have a high priest, he is, uh, he's, he's not one who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. Yet he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. See, Jesus was obedient in his temptation where the first Adam failed miserably in his. Which, because of that, um, the first Adam was cursed by the tree. And, and because he was cursed by the tree, that spread to all men and it brought death to every single person. And guess what? I would say this too. Jesus was cursed by the tree. Matter of fact, there was a tree waiting from him from the very beginning of time. That tree was on the hill of Golgotha. And it was there that Jesus drank a sinner's cup. It was there that the wrath of God was poured out. And it was there that on that tree, he gave life rather than death. See, you see this incredible parallel. It doesn't stop there, though, because you see the first Adam takes and eats of death. And Jesus says, hey, take and eat. And when you do so, remember me, because I am the one who's the bread of life. I am the one who will fill you forever. The first Adam gives you an inheritance that leads straight to death. The second one gives you his name, Jesus, an inheritance that leads to life. The second one, he gives you a big bag of despair. Under that tree sits death and darkness and a lack of hope. But the second one, he gives you, as Peter would say, an inheritance that never spoils or fades away, that is kept in heaven for citizens of the kingdom. Jesus, the greater Adam, he gives us all that we need for a life of godliness, of pursuit in him, to be called righteous, to be an ambassador, to be sons and daughters of the Most High King. It is in him that death was settled, and it is in him that death ultimately will be forever forbidden in our lives one day in the kingdom. You might remember the Chronicles of Narnia series. If, if you've never read the books and watched all that you can watch, guess what? You should. It's fantastic. Um, my favorite is just the book of, of Narnia, the, the very first one. And um, 
but when you, when you read it, uh, you, you just see this incredible picture. When you watch the movie, you see it. And there's this great big uh, lion, uh, Aslan, who's been away from the kingdom of Narnia. It's frozen over. It's in peril. It's in, it's in really uh, darkness, although in some ways it looks beautiful. As it's covered in snow, uh, they're in, in some ways a mesmerized and, and kind of a, uh, a drunken stupor in a way. Uh, though they seem to be jolly, there's no hope in the land. Uh, there's people that have been frozen over time, and then Aslan shows up, and he shows up because of one of the children who um, has made a foolish choice to get on the White Witch's um, team, and, and then Aslan comes, and he makes a deal with the White Witch, and ultimately it leads to his death, and where all the kingdom of Narnia there is there to, mark, uh, to, to mock him, to jeer him, to strip him of his mane, to shave him back, to in many ways expose him. And as you watch that painful plight in the movie, it's agonizing. And it just brings us a reminder until there lay Aslan and his death that the table that he stands on full of solid rock cracks. And then Aslan says himself later to Lucy and Susan, he says, when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in the traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. And that is exactly what happened with our Savior. He drank the cup of wrath on our behalf. And all he's saying is that anyone who would look to him high and lifted up as a sinner in our place, John 3, would stand in the place of Nicodemus or would stand uh, in the place of the woman at the well, dirty and, and unfaithful, a woman who had been married many times, an adulterer herself. Jesus says, I have a way. You know why Jesus says that? Because Jesus declares it of himself. When there is no way, he says, I am the way. When it seems that there is no truth in the world, and the world's full of darkness, he says, I am not only the way, he says, I am the truth. And in a world where uh, it seems that death is what reigns, he says, I am the life. So Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And anyone who wants to come to the Father, he goes, you will have to come right through me. And friends, that ought to encourage our hearts. Because no matter how wicked or vile, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been or even what's been done to us that we couldn't control, there's a God in heaven who's made a way. And he loves you and he cares for you. And he has drank already the cup of wrath on our behalf, cursed by the tree so that we might be set free in the tree of life. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of your faithfulness. I pray that as we walk out of this place, that we would remind ourselves that in death, we are all impacted. All of our descendants are impacted. That in death, we will continue to see people we love suffer hardship and death. After Adam died, Seth died. After Seth, Enosh, and then Kenan, and Mahalil, and Jared, and Enoch, and Methuselah, and Lamech, and Noah, and so on and so on. God, you have seen death reign for a long, long time. Lord, we have seen death reign. We have felt the impact. We have buried friends. We have seen parents go before us. We have seen grandparents, and our hearts long to live in a land where there is no brokenness, there is no darkness, and there is no sin or despair or pain. And we know that 
the only hope we have is in the rule and the reign of Christ, the one who's been perfectly obedient in our place. We can inherit death or we can inherit life. And Father, I pray that many of us today would look to Jesus Christ, his sinless, perfect life, his death on the cross in our place, and that we would find grace that abounds. Lord, may you give us hearts that are thankful. And would you help us to honor you and worship you and be faithful to you because of what you've done in our place. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.